Hello, and welcome to the Family Histories Podcast, the show for and about those of us sat quietly in libraries, archives, and spare rooms all around the world, tirelessly piecing together our collective social and family history. My name is Andrew Martin, I'm a family historian, and I'll be your host. In this episode, The Defiant, we'll be hearing about my guest's Jewish relative who refused to convert to Christianity, and we'll be trying to find clues about a man who completely vanishes in 18th century London. So, put down that workhouse admissions register, grab a cuppa, and let's meet our guest. My guest today is a professional genealogist who specialises in Sephardic genealogy. He co-hosts the weekly Sephardic World series streamed live on YouTube, and he is the president of the Sephardic Genealogical Society. He has also written for The Economist, The Times of London, and a host of other publications. But I've managed to find a gap in his schedule to lure him to the podcast instead. So let's welcome my guest, David Mendoza. Hello, David. Welcome to the Family Histories podcast. Hi, thank you very much. You're welcome. There's quite a lot in your introduction there. You must be a very busy man. Um, But let's start at the beginning and find out what it was that sparked your curiosity with family history. Well, growing up uh, on on the wall of our house, we had a a picture of a a boxer um, by the name of Daniel Mendoza, who was a uh, champion of all England uh, in the 1790s. And, and so we always grew up with this awareness of, of, of having a family history. And then uh, sometime in the 1970s, my, my father came home with this enormous scroll, which looked like a roll of wallpaper. And we sort of unraveled it on the floor and we put a sort of book at each corner. Wow. Uh, and this was a, a family tree that a, a distant relative had, uh, had researched. Okay. And at the very bottom right-hand corner of this was my uh, great-grandfather. And at the very top was uh, somebody called David de Mendoza, my, so my name, uh, who reported uh, lived in Seville in the uh, 1650s, okay. and um, this became our uh, family history. My my father, who was a bit dubious about this family tree, decided that he would uh, research this, and he was able to trace back to the grandson of this guy, who was called uh, Aaron. Uh, Mendoza, and he got married in London in in 1730. But he wasn't able to go back uh, further than that. And um, I, you know, I took up the challenge later. And it turned out that the top generations of the family tree, whilst the people were correct, uh, a lot of what was there was just uh, made up. Ah, and right. uh, it, it later turned out that the, the genealogist who, who did this was uh, a, a guy called uh, Brian Lease, who was the uh, son of a, a London taxi driver who reinvented himself as, as some I- Irish uh, aristocrat. <laughs> And, and spend his time sort of hanging out in the southern southern France with okay. uh, uh, various uh, Russian emigres, <laughs> and and, uh, and his sideline was in uh, in genealogy, and he would always embellish uh, embellish what he was doing, uh, which was no real harm, but um, you know sent me on the wrong track for a yeah. couple of couple of years. Oh dear! Well, it must have been amazing to be unrolling that scroll and going, "Wow, look at look where I've come from!" But then for you to have to go back years later and unpick it and 
uncover the truth that maybe, well, that maybe there wasn't any in there, but oh, so part of it anyway, that must have been a little bit disheartening. What kind of records did you use to kind of unpick it, to cross-reference it? So research now is infinitely easier than it used to be because so much is online and, and digitized. Yeah. So I had access to the uh, Amsterdam records because Amsterdam was the sort of Sephardic uh, Jewish sort of center, really. Uh, also, the Portuguese records okay. um, are very complete. I think Portugal has the most complete archive of any country in Europe. And the Portuguese are very good at scanning records. So most of their Inquisition uh, files are scanned. Uh, Spain is is less good, but they, they have some, uh, some information there. So essentially, it was just about triangulating uh, information from Portugal, from Spain and from, uh, from the Netherlands. Okay. In series two of the podcast, we talked to my old friend Ruth Bramley in an episode called The Taylor, and she talks about her ancestors who are Ashkenazi Jews uh, that came from kind of Russia and Poland. What or who are Sephardic Jews and, and where do they come from? So uh, Sephardic in Hebrew means uh, the Iberian Peninsula, although it's normally just used for, for Spain. And okay. uh, Sephardic Jews are descendants of those Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492 or became Christian in Portugal four years later. Okay, so I guess that your Sephardic ancestry was absolutely no surprise to you at all. But what uh, clues might people look out for if they suspect maybe they have Sephardic Jewish ancestry? What clues would there be? Well, there are different types. Uh, there are three Sephardic uh, sub-communities. There is uh, the so-called Portuguese community, of which I belong, which is mostly uh, or was mostly in places like Amsterdam, London, the Caribbean, places like Jamaica and North America. Okay. Most of us have Spanish or Portuguese surnames, so it's pretty obvious. Um, there is also a community in uh, Morocco and bits of Algeria, uh, most of whom left fairly recently, so people from there would know their ancestry. And likewise, from the, the Ottoman Empire, from sort of Turkey, Greece, Southern Balkans, Syria. And again, the, the, these are populations that have left within the last 100 years or so. So most people there would, would know who their ancestors were. In your research, did you have many other um, relatives and other heirlooms apart from this interesting scroll that you received that uh, could help you with your family history? Or were you had to Go, or did you have to go to archives to, to start searching? No, I mean, our, our family, unfortunately, has been very poor for generations. So there was nothing, uh, nothing passed down. But um, our family has always belonged to the Spanish and Portuguese uh, synagogue, which is the, the religious community. And, and they have, uh, they have very good archives going back to the foundation of the community in London. And are these uh, fairly easy to access? You've already mentioned that they're online now. But are they consistent records? Are there any kind of challenges in, in getting to see these records? The Amsterdam and the Portuguese records can just be consulted online. Okay. For the London records, uh, some of them at the moment are being digitised by the National Library of Israel or on their website. Mm -hmm. Others are in the London Metropolitan Archives and you need special permission to sure. see the original documents, although there are sort of books of, uh, of, of, of names and dates. Um, most of the original documents are written in Portuguese uh, and the religious documents are sometimes written in Hebrew or Aramaic. And how is your Portuguese and Hebrew? 
My Portuguese is very 17th century. <laughs> uh, now, pe- people people comment upon that because I just spend my time reading Inquisition documents. That's probably quite useful then. <laughs> well, maybe so. Um, and uh, I can, you know, I can read Hebrew, but I'm certainly not fluent. Well, I cannot read either of those, so uh, um, I would be absolutely useless. Don't turn to me for any translations. Uh, <laughs> I heard that uh, Spain and Portugal were offering a citizenship as part of a kind of reparation for people who could prove their Sephardic ancestry. Is that a really complicated process to go through? Yeah, this was quite a strange thing. I mean, the Spanish have now closed their their process. Um, For Spain, um, you had to, essentially, you had to pass a language test and do a citizenship test and provide a letter but so that was a little bit complicated because Spain is quite bureaucratic the Portuguese system uh, is still open you need to uh, prove that you have Sephardic ancestry which isn't always easy but uh, essentially once you can do that the process is quite quite straightforward and sort of how long would that normally take is that years or or does it depend really on it really takes a couple of a couple of years. Okay. Um, the the actual processing time is probably minutes, but okay. but things can move quite uh, quite slowly there. Fair enough. Okay. I mentioned in the introduction that uh, you co-host uh, the Sephardic World series on YouTube, and that you're the president of the Sephardic Genealogical Society. What does the Sephardic Genealogical Society do? We are very new, um, and it's an emerging and evolving uh, thing. Uh, my friend Tontilan and I, we started the uh, the broadcast. Uh, well, it turned out we started just as the first lockdown was happening, so we, we ended up with okay. a sort of captive uh, a captive audience. <laughs> we also have, at the moment, we have a project that is using artificial intelligence to... Um, to, to read manuscript uh, documents. This is uh, using software developed at the University of Vienna called uh, Transcribus okay. and uh, a number of other uh, groups and organizations, mostly National Archives, have uh, have done that already. Sure. Uh, but we're, we're making good progress on that. And that, that will open up a vast amount of, uh, of, of documents to, uh, to the general researcher. And um, we're also uh, hoping to, to raise finance to digitize various uh, at-risk documents and also to, to photograph cemeteries and just generally uh, collect and compile data for, for other researchers. And if I was interested in finding out more about their work, how would I do that? There's a web address about to be quoted, I suspect. We we have a, a homemade four-page uh, uh, website at sephardic.world. Um, I'm afraid... Uh, Everything we've done is has been bootstrapped, so I'm afraid it's not as uh, as glamorous as it might be. But one day, one day, of course, it will be much better. One day. What is family history to you? What a question. That's a really <laughs> interesting question. It, it is a it is a connection. It is a connection with the past. I think for me, you know, growing up with a name like Mendoza in England. Uh, 
sort of marks you out as being somewhat uh, different. Not, 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 of course, in any bad way. But it's 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 nice to know that. And yeah. and also, I've always been interested in in history. I mean, originally I was just interested in English history and Roman history. Mm-hmm. But there's this whole area of uh, sort of early modern history and the the Portuguese Empire and the start of globalization, which uh, I, I I find a personal family connection in that and it's just uh well i think like like all your listeners i i I just find it fascinating it's now the part of the show where my guest picks one of their most fascinatingly good bad or just plain ugly relatives and they tell their life story so david who are you going to introduce us to uh, this is a sort of morally ambiguous story, which uh, starts with my discovering a relative, uh, Miguel de Mendonça Valladolid, and Mendonça is the Portuguese version of my surname, uh, Mendoza. Okay. And he was burnt alive by the Portuguese Inquisition in uh, 1731. And this was more or less the first thing I knew about him. So I, I, I saw him as... It's quite memorable, to be fair. It, Indeed. Uh, I saw him as a a victim and a sort of martyr. But the more I started to dig, the more um, unclear everything um, became. Uh, But if if I can sort of create uh, the the context to start at the beginning. So um, there had been a war uh, being waged by uh, Christians and Muslims on and off for about 800 years over control of the uh, Iberian Peninsula. And this ended in uh, 1492 when the Christians captured Granada, which was the last uh, sort of Muslim uh, stronghold uh, on the Iberian Peninsula. And the Catholic uh, monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, literally from Granada, they uh, sent Christopher Columbus off uh, west, uh, supposedly to, to discover a shortcut to, to the Indies and, in fact, sort of bumping into uh, America. And uh, next, having sort of dealt with the, the the, the Muslims and the exploration, the next thing on the list was what to do about Spain's uh, Jewish population, because uh, these people were uh, Christian fanatics. And of course, it was a, a different age. And uh, they basically dealt with the Muslims. So what to do with the Jews? And they decided that either they had to uh, convert and generations of Jews before had converted some voluntarily some some not and uh, so they decided either the jews had to convert or they had to go or indeed there was a third option but to get killed but i am not sure anyone uh, chose that no, one quite a low volunteer rate for that one i'd imagine i would think so for those who chose um exile they they headed off into uh, various directions and one lot just crossed the land border into portugal okay and they found no peace in Portugal because four years later, uh, the Jews in Portugal in 1496 were compelled to convert to Christianity with uh, no option to leave. And uh, in, in, in Portugal, this is called a, a standing conversion, which carries the implication that basically everyone was herded together, some priests yeah. threw, threw holy water over them, and, and that was that. No choice, yeah. And they were sort of left alone uh, for a couple of generations, during which point some probably surreptitiously continued to practice Judaism, uh, some probably embraced Catholicism, and probably most people were, were somewhere uh, in the middle. And the... 
the church in Portugal was trying to bring the Inquisition to Portugal. The Inquisition had obviously existed already in, in, in Spain. And there was this sort of clandestine war going on between these two groups in uh, Rome with both sides like bribing bribing cardinals, uh, one to bring the Inquisition in and the other to keep them out. And in the end, the Inquisition was brought in in uh, 1536. Uh, the Inquisition was funded by what it could confiscate. Okay. So uh, they had, uh, let's say, a lot of uh, a lot of candidates uh, in Portugal, and so the Portuguese Inquisition sort of became very, uh, very robust, uh, very uh, quickly, mm-hmm. and, and frankly was uh, was quite vicious um, to to its uh, victims, who by this point were called New Christians okay. because they were no longer they were no longer Jews, but uh, even having converted, they still were defined as such. So somebody whose family has always been Catholic was an old Christian and somebody who had just converted was a new Christian. And there was sort of discriminatory laws um, against uh, new Christians. Kind of forced in, but still kept separate. Exactly so. Uh, in 1580, the, the young king of Portugal, King Sebastian, decided it would, it would be a, a good idea to go on crusade uh, to Morocco. And he managed to get himself and a large part of the Portuguese aristocracy killed, uh, which left a vacant throne in Portugal. Okay. And one of the candidates for that was Philip II of Spain of the Spanish uh, Armada. Uh, fame. And he had a rather large army and the guy on the other side was a cardinal. So uh, no surprise that Philip II became uh, Philip I of uh, Portugal. And one of the unexpected uh, side effects of of the union of the two crowns is it made it much easier for new Christians from Portugal to, uh, to go to Spain. Uh, and a lot did, both because of the persecution by the Inquisition in Portugal and also Spain or parts of Spain were getting very rich from their colonial empire, all the sort of gold and silver and other stuff coming in from uh, Mexico and Peru and elsewhere. So uh, a lot of uh, new, new Christians from Portugal went to Spain, uh, including uh, my ancestors. And in around uh, 1640, uh, my ancestors settled in a town which in English we would call Jayen, which is north of Malaga on the southern coast, Costa del Sol, the sort of Andalusia in Spain. Uh, okay. Spanish friends call it Jaén. So um, any, anyway, uh, the uh, the family uh, settled in Jaén. <laughs> and it was uh, rather bad timing because in 1640, Portugal rose in rebellion uh, against uh, Spain, which meant that Portuguese people in in Spain were not quite enemy aliens, but they were subject to suspicion. And also there was the belief that uh, all Portuguese in Spain were new Christians, which a lot were. And then there was further the assumption that all new Christians were were secretly Jewish. And this goes back to some uh, ancient uh, ancient prejudice. So so life uh, life got uh, a bit difficult in uh, in Chain. Um, but the uh, one of the sons of this family, who is the uh, the brother of uh, my ancestor David de Mendoza at the top of the uh, family tree, my, my my father brought home, mm-hmm. he seems to have gone to uh, to Malaga okay. and was arrested there in the late 1670s uh, by the Inquisition, and he and his wife and his brother-in-law were taken to Madrid, and in Madrid they they appeared in the 
the grandest uh, auto de fe in Spanish history, uh, which was held in uh, 1680 to celebrate the King of Spain's uh, marrying the granddaughter of Louis XIV of France, the, uh, the so-called uh, Sun King. Uh, I think it's probably helpful just to say a little bit about what the Inquisition was, because sure. most people just have this sort of the Monty Python um, version. The, Very different from that. Somewhat different. Uh, the Inquisition was a a legal tribunal of the church, and it was a tribunal against Catholic heresy. So in essence, what they were trying to do is they were trying to enforce religious conformity. Uh, they uh, largely went after Jews, but at different point, or oh, people accused of so-called Judaizing, but they also went after Protestants, bigamists, people who swore that sort of thing. Rarely, actually, after after witches, um, the the Inquisition decided that, that witchcraft, witchcraft trials, which of course were happening in in northern Europe, they described they thought that was just just nonsense. Okay. But uh, the way it worked is uh, virtually everyone who was arrested was was guilty, was found guilty, okay. uh, and uh, as a first offender, you you had a choice. You could. Uh, confess your guilt and be reconciled to the Catholic Church and they would take all your staff uh, or you could um, not admit your guilt and get burnt alive and they would also take all, all your staff. Okay. Um, for, for a second or third offence you're, you're much more likely to get uh, burnt, uh, burnt alive and um, the auto de fe was essentially a piece of public theatre at the end of a number of individual processes against uh, individual so-called criminals. And what, what happened at, at the auto de fe is that people had their sentences read out. Okay. Those that were to be uh, reconciled to the church went through a ceremony for that. Uh, a sermon was, uh, was preached and those that were found guilty were handed over to the secular authorities. It was called being relaxed to the secular authorities because the church... Relaxed? <laughs> that's a direct, a, a literal translation, uh, but th that, that's the word we use. It's anything but relaxing. <laughs> Indeed, indeed, so uh, because the the church itself couldn't get blood on that on on their hands, so it was the uh, okay. the local um, authorities who did it. Okay, okay, yeah, I see. So um, Juan, who was the, the the brother of my ancestor uh, David and his wife, had the good sense to uh, be reconciled uh, to the church, and they had all their stuff taken, and they were then sent to live in the city of uh, Valladolid because you were not allowed to go back to the areas that you already knew and you were not allowed within 12 miles of the border or the sea in case you you did a runner. So uh, they were sent destitute to this city of uh, Valladolid okay. and there they, uh, they rebuilt a life and this is where uh, Miguel, uh, who eventually gets burnt alive, was born in 1685. And we don't really know very much about his early life. We know a lot about him because his own Inquisition process, uh, his file is 900 pages long. So we know a mass about him, which... 900. You could probably print out my entire family history records and you'd still not hit 900 for everyone in my tree. So for one person to have 900 pages about them, that's, that is... Amazing. There is a certain irony that the Inquisition's goal was effectively to sort of wipe us out from history, but they've actually done us uh, done us quite a service. Or if, yeah, kind of. If not to 
to Miguel himself. So we don't know very much about his early life, but I pieced other bits together. And my direct ancestor and, and namesake, uh, the Miguel's uncle, who was at the top of the family tree, he himself uh, was arrested by the Inquisition in 1696, so more or less 20 years after his, his brother and sister-in-law. Uh, the, the way it worked, generally, if one person was guilty or, or arrested, other family members could assume that they would be arrested because the, the accusation of Judaizing was made against normally against families, not uh, individuals. So um, David's wife, uh, we don't know her Catholic name because obviously they had different, they had Christian names in Spain and Jewish names later. We know her as Abigail. Uh, She um, grabbed her kids and also her nieces and nephews, which includes young Miguel, and somehow got her way to Amsterdam where there was a, a free Portuguese Jewish uh, community and she arrived in Amsterdam with ten uh, children, presumably just in the clothes that they they wore. And uh, apparently she was en route to London. We have no idea why, but she uh, stayed in Amsterdam. And uh, meanwhile, um, David uh, went through who, whose Catholic name was Antonio. He he was in the Inquisition prison in uh, Seville. And he had the good sense to be reconciled. So they, they took his stuff. He had his auto de fe. And then they put him in a, a sort of open prison because the idea was that if you could do some work, that was less cost to the Inquisition for feeding him. Um, but he, he skedaddled. Okay. Uh, and there is a, a letter from the Seville Tribunal of the Inquisition to the uh, Suprema, the, the headquarters in Madrid, uh, reporting upon this and, and giving a not terribly uh, flattering opinion of, uh, of my ancestor, including that he had sort of yellow bulging eyes. Um, but uh, he, he made him his way also to Amsterdam because he was a, a witness at a wedding uh, there a few years later. Okay. And so young Miguel, he grew up in his uh, aunt and uncle's house in Amsterdam as a Jew. Uh, he had a Jewish education there. Yeah. And when he became older, he, he then went to Bordeaux in France, where there was another community where he had some uh, maternal relatives. And his uncle there was a merchant, and he went to uh, work with his uncle. Okay. Uh, later, he then goes to, to Porto in northern Portugal, where he has another uncle and, and essentially carried on in, in, in business there. Okay. Yeah. He tells the Inquisition uh, that... His uncle was arrested and that in 1717, he himself fled to the Portuguese colony of Brazil. And we know his uncle was arrested because we we have it also from secondary sources. And this uncle, uh, unfortunately, was also uh, burnt alive uh, because it wasn't his uh, first offence. But uh, Miguel fled to uh, Salvador de Bahia, which is a, a beautiful city in uh, in Brazil on on the coast. And here, um, the story gets a bit dark. And as, as I said at the beginning, I was learning Portuguese and I was learning to read the, uh, the text as we were going along. So it, it sort of slowly emerged okay. that, um, what he was doing in Portugal is he was uh, transporting horses and uh, slaves, as to say, people oh uh, from the, the coast 
to the interior of Portugal, to, to Minas Gerais, which is where uh, a lot of the gold is mined and other sort of precious uh, materials. And probably these uh, people and, and horses probably had uh, quite a, a short uh, life expectancy uh, when they uh, when they got there. Uh-huh. But later he became a, a more sort of general merchant traveling around uh, Brazil and also what's now Uruguay, which was then part of, uh, part of uh, Brazil. And because he grew up in Amsterdam, uh, he, he had this Jewish education and he was teaching other new Christians there uh, Jewish prayers and about Judaism. And uh, he tells the Inquisition something that may not be true. Inquisition, these Inquisition documents are very often smoke and mirrors because people are trying to uh, protect uh, protect the people they love. He told the Inquisition that he married a lady who was an old Christian and unsuccessfully tried to get her to convert to Judaism, which may or may not be true, I don't know. And together they had uh, three daughters and were living together for about 10 years uh, in uh, Brazil. Meanwhile, in Portugal, so 8,000 miles away, one of his cousins uh, had been arrested and possibly under torture, she denounced him as uh, as a Judaizer. And so a a warrant for his arrest was issued by the uh, Lisbon Tribunal of the Inquisition. And this warrant will have made its way presumably across the ocean to, to okay. probably to Rio at that point and then to, to Salvador and eventually finding him where he was. Mm-hmm. And he got uh, arrested in about 1728 uh, near San Paulo, which was then just a small town, is obviously today a mega city. And he was taken from there all the way back to Portugal. So he never saw his, his wife and uh, children again. And he was kept for a couple of years in the Inquisition cells in Lisbon, which was quite, actually quite common. Um, During this time, he refused to renounce Judaism, which is kind of strange because he just had to do that and he could be reconciled and life could start again. And within Judaism, it's, it's acceptable. You know, there are... To save a life, you can do most things. But he, he seems to have been a bit of a fanatic. Okay. Uh, and not only did he refuse to renounce Judaism, he also tried to keep kosher, to keep sort of Jewish dietary laws inside the Inquisition prison, okay. which which obviously was not a popular move with his, his, uh, his jailers. No, I bet. And uh, eventually they lost patience with him. And uh, he was taken to an auto de fe on the 17th of June, 1731. And uh, for people who know Portugal, uh, know Lisbon, this was in uh, Rocio. And he was uh, sentenced to death and he was burnt alive uh, the same day. Probably for people who know Lisbon in the Praça do Comercio, which is the beautiful square just facing the... uh, the river, uh, 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 and that was uh, the end of him, and probably forgotten within the family for for then hundreds of years. In the inventory of his property, the first five items are five people: uh, Luis, Luisa, Josefa, Gregorio, and Eugenia. So five slaves. All we know of them is their their names and the uh, the value, the resale value that the Inquisition. Uh, Put, put on them. So it, it's really quite a sort of complicated and, and morally 
ambivalent story because we probably shouldn't be putting our values on people in the 18th century. And yet, at the same time, you would think that somebody who has himself seen and experienced such horrors would would have a bit of fellow feeling for for other human beings. So he's he's both a bit of a victim and, and of course, also a, a, a perpetrator of injustice. But I think not untypical of of the period in terms of for, for a, a a Portuguese Jew in terms of the sheer distances he travelled when most people rarely went more than you know a couple of days walk uh, from home and the sort of life he lived within some respects is quite quite modern he's like a sort of multilingual person who's yeah. sort of moving around and doing stuff so um, yeah in- interesting yet at the same time. Um, troubling yeah i mean you said it was murky right at at the beginning and uh to discover that he was owning people as slaves must have been quite a horrible thing to realize when you saw that record that that there it was and particularly when you see their names and it all becomes even more real that must have been quite a horrible moment yeah i mean there was another um case i was reading in in spain where there was uh, a, a Jewish couple, actually it was a hairdresser and his wife, and they, they were on the run uh, from Pamplona trying to get to the uh, French border. And they got arrested, them with um, a, a young woman who was their slave. And one just wonders, while all of this is going on around, what this young woman is, is, is thinking about this bizarre bizarre world um it's it's yeah it's it's very very it's it's very strange but i i think that's that's the 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 history of the uh the 18th century really yeah and so presumably the the family in amsterdam continued to to thrive and and grow i would presume the family in Amsterdam were never, uh, never rich. Uh, essentially, the community consisted of two lots of people, wealthy merchants and poor people who arrived just in the clothes that they were wearing that never really got enough capital to, yeah. uh, to build up. Uh, and indeed, my, my own um, family history, and we started off with the, these grandiose beliefs that we were some sort of aristocratic uh, family, which is, you know, yeah. nonsense. I mean, everyone starts there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe we made their shoes or something. I don't know. But my family um, arrived uh, in England in uh, 1714 because they were paid to leave Amsterdam. And that was basically the policy of the community, uh, the community leaders there at the moment, that they had so many poor people flooding in uh, from Spain and Portugal and also from Central Europe because the the, the Ottoman Habsburg wars between you know the, the Austrians and the Turks uh, were were not good news for the Jews and enormous numbers of refugees. So Amsterdam was just filled with refugees and the, the community couldn't cope so they paid people to go elsewhere and, and and that is that is how my family arrived in London you know I, I started you know, originally we thought that they were merchants who arrived in their own boats but they they basically came third class from Amsterdam not as glamorous as that no not at all well thank you David for sharing Miguel's life story but now I think it's time for you to face the brick wall Grab a pen, listeners, as it's now time for my guest to tell us about one of their annoying research brick walls. We've all faced those dead ends at one point or another, so why not see if you can help my guest to turn their brick wall to brick dust? Okay, David, 
What have you got for us? My fifth time great-grandfather was called Aaron Mendoza. He was the grandson of David Mendoza, who was at the top of the family tree, born in Spain, lived in Amsterdam and died in London. We know that Aaron was married in London in 1730 at uh, Bevismark's synagogue, actually, to which I, I belong. And three years later, we know that he translated a in London a religious manual from Portuguese to Spanish, uh, presumably to help new arrivals from Inquisition Spain to learn uh, Jewish okay. customs. And this actually was the first Jewish book published in, in England. And we know that he was poor uh, because he was receiving uh, handouts uh, from the synagogue until uh, 1744 when he just disappears. The okay. Congregational Minutes book uh, reports from uh, five years later in, in 1749, a destitute uh, Mendoza family being brought from Ireland to London. And the next year, his wife, Benvenida, uh, which means welcome in Portuguese, she starts receiving charity uh, from the synagogue for her and her children. But there is no Aaron to be seen anywhere um, and we don't know whether the family were in Ireland or had passed through Ireland because Ireland was a, a stopping off point on for, for ships going to the Americas or indeed going to Spain yep. or Portugal. It's last place, sure. especially Cork, where you could take on uh, fresh water and, and fruit and veg. So we don't know if the family was in Ireland, which is possible, or had just passed through Ireland or come back uh, through Ireland. So basically, Aaron could have been in North America, South America, the Caribbean, Spain, Portugal, France, or, or somewhere in the Mediterranean, <laughs> or somewhere else. Uh, we, we, we don't know. He just literally has disappeared from the map. What we also don't know is we don't know where he was born, okay. uh, because there is no record of that. The assumption if he was married in 1730, he was probably born around 1710 uh, somewhere. And the assumption is that he was born in Amsterdam. But Amsterdam has very good records, and there is no record of him being born there. Okay. There is a record of somebody with a different surname, but surnames are not always fixed, being born in uh, 1708 in Bayonne, which is on southwest France. It's a, a port not terribly far from the uh, Spanish border. Okay. But that could be him as well, but we don't know. And he's of real interest to me. I mean, in fairness, it was his wife, Benvenida, who seems to have been the one that held everything together and uh, brought the family back and... and allowed it to, to continue. And indeed, the grandmother of the actor, Peter Sellers, who who, who played uh, the Pink Panther, mm -hmm. uh, his grandmother was called Welcome Mendoza, and Welcome being obviously the English version of Benvenida. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm still curious about uh, about where Aaron was born and, and what happened to him. The, the best guess is he was in Ireland. Uh, there were not really communities, but there were two small groups of Portuguese Jews there. Unfortunately, the, uh, the gravestones from the cemetery were, were looted long ago from, uh, for people just to use as, as building material. Okay. And the, um, 
Irish records were, uh, I think, burnt to a crisp during the uh, Irish Civil War. I think Dublin, Dublin Castle yeah. was burnt down. So we have very little to go on. We we have this fantasy that uh, DNA will at one point sort of throw something up, but it seems unlikely. But he's he's important to our family history because. I think he's the last generation that we could properly describe as Portuguese Jews, you know, people who are speaking okay. Portuguese and part of this global mm-hmm. diaspora. Thereafter, the family basically becomes sort of English speakers, sort of just a London, a poor, another London uh, family that's living in poverty in, in the city yeah. in the East End. So um, if uh, if anybody has any clues on, on, on Aaron, I'd be really grateful to, to hear from them. Okay, so you think that Aaron was born about 1710, or the 1710s, based on his marriage date in the 1730s. Yes. Um, And then you have a record of him, what, 1744, with the synagogue. Correct. And then 1749, you have a record of the widow receiving some kind of, did you say receiving like a relief or a parish... Okay. Yeah, char- charity. charity. It's a par- parish, parish relief equivalent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she's she's definitely there in 1749. So is it possible that maybe he died between 1744 to 1749, somewhere in there, which is why she would be the recipient? If he died in London we would have the record. If he died in Amsterdam, we would have the record. And then in Hamburg and various other cities, we would we would have the record and we don't. These, these communities were run by merchants and they kept records of everything. Yeah, businessmen. Yeah, yeah. so um, he's, he's not in any of the obvious places. Okay, so he could have died. They could have gone to Ireland and he could have died there and the records for it have been destroyed and then she returned from Ireland, potentially. He could. He could even now be sitting in an Inquisition prison in uh, in in Lisbon or somewhere. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so quite a puzzle because we've got some approximate dates there, um, and potential for a wide geographic area. Um, and I know that we have listeners in quite a lot of countries now, but uh, this is a really big uh, big question mark over as to where Aaron went. You talked a little bit about the names not being kind of fixed um are there lots of different combinations or possibilities for for that yeah um in spain and portugal you often get one surname from each uh parent and uh, yeah. the order of the names is different between uh spain and portugal uh, and we don't quite know because this was a bilingual uh, community also people could sure. adopt names of places so we had Miguel de Mendonça Valladolid who was born in Valladolid uh, you could also take names from any of your your grandparents so um and also people sometimes would use aliases and people would use different names in different places and different spellings uh, and of course they use different given names between catholic and uh, sort of Protestant or Muslim uh, jurisdictions, so it can be a bit of a a bit of a nightmare. But our family are are actually Castros. Uh, we have no idea why we're called Mendoza. Okay. 
that is quite different. I think for somebody who who, who studies <laughs> Spain or Portugal, it's 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 pretty pretty standard. But um, I think in in English genealogy, it's uh, a challenge. Yeah. Was there any evidence of him ever turning up with any different kind of name combination, or is it consistent for him? The only name we have for him is Mendoza and various different variant spellings like with a, a C or, or Mendonça Portuguese. Um, I think in England by that point, names, Jewish Jews were just sticking with their names. But if he was in, in Spain or Portugal, I have no idea. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a challenge. One of the advantages, though, we have is, is it was always actually a very small community so there's only a sort of a limited number of people who 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 one can choose for, and one of our our, our fantasies yeah. within the Sephardic genealogical society is that we can build a database of everybody, because there probably never were more than from that day to this more than about quarter of a million uh, people. So it's you know in the age of big data, it's it's doable, but um, it's going to take some time. Okay, so listeners, there's your challenge. 1710s for approximate birth, 1740s for a go missing or a death date, and geographically, well, put a pin in a map and see where it, see where it appears. So uh, if you think you have uh, an idea as to uh, a clue that could help David with his search for his uh, ancestor, then the best place to go is to go to familyhistoriespodcast.com and use our contact form. And any messages you send to us, we will send them straight on to David. And hopefully we can turn this brick wall to brick dust. Whilst the listeners are doing that, I think I might be able to just help you a little bit with solving your brick wall. But you'd need to follow me through to the garage. Okay, let's go. Here we are. What on earth is all this? It's my secret time machine. And as a thank you, I thought you might like a little trip in it. You know, see if you can solve your brick wall for yourself. A time machine? Re- really, is this safe? Safe? Oh, yes. Mostly. Mostly? Well, you have to be careful. For example, it's a bit hot in Pompeii in 79 AD. And don't try going back to 1816, as there's not much sunshine and food's in short supply. But I'm sure you'll be fine. Remind me when and where you wanted to go? It's 1750 in the city of London to uh, see Benvenida. Ah, uh, yes. Well, I'll just pop you down on the 17th of March, just outside the Bevismark Synagogue. Oh, and you'll need this. It's a temporal beacon. Just press the big button when you're ready to come home, OK? The big button. Okay. Great. Grab a seat. Here we go. David Mendoza. Thank you. Goodbye and good luck. Ha! Spot on. Well, ish. Hmm, no, Cardiff is nice. The Family Histories podcast was presented and produced by me, Andrew Martin. My guest was the brilliant David Mendoza. And if you've enjoyed this episode, then please click subscribe to get the next one for free or consider leaving us a review. Thank you. Approximately no family historians were harmed in the making of this podcast.